Hi, hello, bonjour, and namaste. This is Out of the Clouds, a podcast at the crossroads between business and mindfulness. And I'm your host, Anne Mulatalo. Hi, so I've been off for a few weeks, but I'm delighted to be back with a wonderful, wonderful guest. Roshana Green is a multidisciplinary wellness consultant. We met online as I meet (laughs) a lot of the guests that you'll be hearing or that you have heard on the podcast until now. Roshana is a forest yoga guardian and she is the director of equity and contemplative psychotherapy at the Nalanda Institute. And there she directs and she teaches within the contemplative psychotherapy program which I have been enrolled in for two years in a row, first for the mindfulness year and then for the compassion year. I really enjoyed getting to know Roshana better through the interview, and I'm really excited for you to discover more about who she is and and what she does. So in our conversation, we talk about how Roshana is essentially a curious kid, We talk about her passion for reading, how she discovered the power of agency, of making choices to direct the course of her own life, all thanks to her mother. We talk about her passion for science and chemistry, math, and how this combined with an interest in business directed her to a 15-year career in medical device and science companies before before she made her way into yoga, mindfulness, contemplative psychotherapy, as well as compassion-based resilience training. And so it's really exciting for me to talk to her about her practice, to talk about the importance of compassion, what it means for the people who explore the modalities either as teachers or simply as a student. I found this to be a really profound and inspiring conversation and I hope that you will enjoy it as much as I did. So without further ado, I give you my conversation with Roshana Green. Happy listening. Roshana, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to Out of the Clouds. I'm happy to be here with you. Looking forward to our conversation. Me too. As I was explaining to you the other day, I really like to start the podcast with asking my guests who they are and where they come from. And sometimes it feels like a really big question. So feel free to answer it in any way that you please. And really the goal, and I know that it's hard to keep to that goal, is to spend more time first getting to know each other and talking about who we are rather than immediately jumping into what we do, which I am as much a culprit as anyone else. (laughs) So if that's all right, would you start by telling us your story and go as in depth as you'd like? Sure. You know what came to mind immediately when you said who you are? What came to mind is that I'm just a curious kid. I'm just a curious kid. I love learning. I'm the oldest of four. And I grew up 
without very much. I grew up very poor. My mother primarily raised us. And as a young child, as early as I can remember, I just, I was a voracious reader. Like I love to read. One as a way of really expanding my horizons. And I really specifically I was aware that my world was very small and I had a limited view and a very interesting specific perspective on the world growing up in like a not great neighborhood. As a result, I played outside some, but you didn't wander too far. There wasn't a lot of wandering that wandering wouldn't be safe. And so I was able to explore more through reading and I'd read whatever I could get my hands on. And I read and read. Like I remember doing like these book reading competitions. And I was just like crank through books. But I just had a desire to learn more beyond my immediate environment. And, and my mother really pressed and expressed to us that education would be the thing that would allow us to expand our horizons and rise above our means and really give ourselves the best opportunities to not live in that neighborhood, have other choices and really have best access to all the opportunities we wanted. So it was always really focused on learning as much as I could and being as educated as I could, almost to a fault because I it fell into a bit of perfectionism. I was a good student, made good grades, like straight A's. So if I ever made anything less than like an A plus, like that was problematic. And not that my mother told me it was problematic to me because I want it to be. I really had attached myself to this notion that this was going to be the thing that was going to change things for me. So I had to be the best at it. And nothing less than the best was going to be good enough. So definitely an overachiever and <laughs> high performer. I remember having this self-placed pressure of needing to get this just right and really excel at this because I was also the oldest before. So I needed to set the example of what that meant and what that looked like. So I definitely put that pressure on myself. Fortunately, I'm naturally good at math and science and I also really like it. So I excelled in those things. And that was the beginning, kind of got me on my path of learning and pursuing mm. education. I'd love to know what were your favorite books when you were a kid? Or maybe what were seminal reads that you put your hands on? Here's what I'm struggling with is remembering specific titles. But anything that exposed me to a world that was different from mine. Like growing up in a ghetto, didn't get to travel as a child. There was a beach that was like 45 minutes away, got to that. But other than that, travel wasn't something that was accessible. So things that allowed me to have a window into other worlds or other places in the world. Mm. Their lifestyles were fascinating to me. And it's funny, I think about this now. As a child, I read a lot of fiction, which makes sense. You read a lot of fiction as a child. But I was at that time also aware that I was reading it to escape. And because I still hold this awareness, I rarely read fiction now. 
That's fascinating. Listen, I was asking you because I was also a voracious reader when I was a child. And I think like you, yeah, there was a hefty dose of escapism from where I was. Unlike you, I wasn't in the ghetto. It was in a tiny Swiss village, Mm -hmm. but a little bit stuck because you couldn't get anywhere. Couldn't get, and this was very far before the internet. (laughs) Yes. Fascinating. No internet, no, no social media, no internet as ways of even connecting, like connecting Mm -hmm. other people, but as no means of connecting with information as young people have access to now. Yeah, but it's fascinating. I rarely read fiction. When I'm reading, I want to feel like I'm learning something and not necessarily learning it to directly apply it for something, but I want to feel like I'm accumulating knowledge. One of the ways I do that is reading nonfiction. But yeah, usually when people recommend something fiction, I take a glance at it and it just feels, I don't know, I don't need it. I have two books I'm going to send you. (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) So expect a package. I'm so excited. I'm not going to tell you what it is because then it's just, it's happier when it's a discovery. It is. I love a surprise and I love books. Books are my favorite gift. Gifting is not my love language. (laughs) However, if I were to receive a gift... A book is like one of the greatest gifts I could receive. And I often, I really enjoy giving them. Awesome. Yeah, I definitely enjoy giving them. (laughs) I've given away a book while it was reading it to someone because they seemed so moved by the subject matter and they were just discovering this. I've literally poolside a few years ago and was reading a book and someone walked up to me. We had a conversation about it. I closed it and I gave it to them. I wasn't even done with it. But it was important to me to not miss this moment. This person was so passionate. Here, take my book. I'll rebuy it. (laughs) That's so funny. So you have this massive love for learning and you're devouring books. You're great at science. And so what happens next? Science, really, science and math were a great way to pick a place of study that could take me somewhere that I could see would progress into some type of field of study or career choice that could be fruitful. So I did very well in high school and the high school I went to was very math and science focused and it had a like an accelerated program that was focused on engineering actually. And it wasn't really inclined to go into engineering per se, but the school was a feeder for all of the top universities and colleges in America. And it's where I learned about the college I eventually attended, which Dartmouth College is an Ivy League college here in America. And I thought, okay, what opens more doors than going to an Ivy League college? So I applied to several colleges. I intentionally did not apply to anything in my state from Texas. And I didn't apply to anything regionally because it was important to me to, again, choose an experience that was going to expand my world. So I wanted to move away from home. I also predominantly growing up had only gone to schools that were majority like Hispanic and Black. And while there's definite benefits to learning in that environment, 
for a person of color and definitely being from a minoritized group in America, there's benefits there. I also had full awareness that that wasn't representative of the world I was going to go into and work in America. So I wanted to make sure I went to a school that was more representative. And unfortunately, what that means is it's hard to find something that's actually representative in a way that reflects the true population of America. So either you immerse yourself in something that is like mm. historically black colleges and universities, or you go to something maybe more community focused that would be more representative of communities and local areas, or you go to a school that is by far going to be predominantly white mm-hmm. with a very small percentage of minority students. And that was Dartmouth. But I did feel strongly that I needed and wanted to have that experience and wanted to put myself in a position that was going to stretch and grow me in a lot of ways. And even at an early age, I was cognizant of like very intentionally making choices. Like, here's the comfortable choice. And here's the one that's going to put me at my edge and really maximize my opportunity for growth and break me through walls of fear or things like that. And let me go somewhere far away from home. The weather is completely different. I didn't even know that I didn't own a real coat before I went to school in the Northeast. Nice. All of that. So all of these things. So it was a very different experience and fully aware that I was going to an Ivy League college that was going to open some doors for me. It's fascinating because you sound so incredibly wise in your choices. You sound like you were incredibly thoughtful and mature for your age because that's a lot of weight on someone's shoulder a lot of choices made at that age that changed the course of one's life and I feel like not a lot of people can make them but you sound like you really already had that perspective I did have that weight and I felt like it was necessary to have that perspective because so much was relying on that my mother did instill in me that I had so much agency to make choices that would take my life in one direction or another. And I felt that very early on. I knew that very early on. So I was very thoughtful about those decisions because I knew they could dictate the course of my life. But I also felt like they could possibly influence the course of my siblings' life because. I was the oldest, so I wanted to do the best and set the best example to maybe provide a blueprint. Obviously, I knew I couldn't do all of this for them, but can I provide a good example of how this could be done? Can I go back to that word agency? Yeah. It's very powerful. I rarely hear it spoken. How did your mother instill that thought that you had agency that you had choice over what happened to you in your life? My sister and I, so I'm the oldest and there's two boys in the middle and my sister is the youngest and we're all pretty close, closer than most. We've realized closer than quite a few families and siblings. But my sister and I were joking that my mother has raised us with a little bit of a scared straight program. So the reason why she was able to instill the importance of 
and the power of agency is that she would quite literally point out to us examples of things around us. And notwithstanding systemic and societal pressures and issues and things that influenced people's access to choices, but she would point out things in our local or immediate environment of a choice that someone had made and an outcome that it happened instead of just saying to us, don't ever do this thing because blah, 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 that happens. That's the outcome. She would say, see, look at this thing. See, look at this outcome and would remind us like you have choices. This person made this choice. This is the outcome, whether it was people getting involved in, oh, skipping school or getting involved in like gang related things or just violence in neighborhoods or teen pregnancy, like all kinds of things that you could see around us. My mother would not say, don't do this. I just remember her giving examples and showing us, here is a choice. Here's an outcome. What choices are you going to make? And that was very empowering. And it was also very scary because you think, you're like, wait a minute, how did this simple, what seemed like a frivolous or not that serious or impactful of a decision lead to this potential outcome? But I could connect those dots and see it for myself. And yeah, from an early age, I remember specifically thinking that nothing was more important than me getting my education and being able to grow beyond my current circumstances. And if I, in my own consideration, saw something as distracting from that, it was a no. That's it. Re- it really was. It really was that way. Like I remember friends inviting me, like, "Oh, just tell your mom you're doing this, and then we'll go do that." Whatever. Pretty benign thing. Lots of young kids do, and like junior high school or high school, do this. And honestly, for the most part, not much harm comes from it. But I, most of the time. But I remember thinking, no, that feels too risky. I really got to stay focused. Otherwise, I could compromise my opportunity to change my circumstances. I like the word focus. You just knew you had vision to where you were going. And you were like, yeah, no, one degree pivot can take me to a whole different life. It seems like just one degree and yet a whole different journey. And for some people that one degree, maybe it didn't matter to them as much. Maybe they didn't feel they had as much to lose, or maybe they didn't see that the one degree could make a difference in what they had to gain. But it felt so meaningful and important to me that I wouldn't risk it. But so I have a follow-up question on that. Was it simply focus? or Because I think we can talk about this later about meditation. It's also where you put your focus is, is where you're going to get to. Or was it also passion? Like, were you very passionate about your field of studies? And so for our listeners, you studied science and then later you went to business school. Were you driven by passion at that point? Hmm. Tough questions. (laughs) Interesting question because it was a combination of things. I think there was, there's a focus. There was a fear of failure. And there was a passion. And passions Hmm. change. And passions shift. At the time I was leaving high school and going to college, 
I had fixated on this notion that I was going to, before going to business school, I was fixated on this notion that I was going to be a doctor. So I went to college pre-med. I was president of the pre-med society. I was shadowing cardiothoracic surgeons at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I was like, this is what I'm doing. I'm very focused. And at some point while in college, I had an, an awareness that I wasn't quite clear who I was doing that for. Because that while I was passionate and I loved science, what I was seeing from the lifestyle of the people who had taken this path to become doctors, I didn't feel that didn't feel resonant for me. That did not feel like I couldn't imagine myself in that lifestyle or in that life, that work-life balance or lack thereof. And I remember this distinctly in college. I remember becoming aware of the fact that I was fascinated with the idea of being a doctor, but I didn't really want that. I loved math and science. I love science. That felt like that was truly mine. But this idea, this notion of being a doctor was something that was like a sexy idea and also felt and sounded good from the perspective of, oh, I can do this for my family. Like I'll become this doctor for the family. And everyone knew that this was something I was going to do. So then there was a lot of hope caught up in that and hanging on that. But I remember the day I made a decision that wasn't for me, that I was doing that for other people. And I remember telling people in my family, I'm not going to medical school. I refused to even take the test, the MCAT. I was like, I, because I didn't want it out there as even an opportunity for further pressure down that path. I said, no, it was a definitive no. And yeah, continued to pursue science just for science sake, because I was fascinated by it. I had no passion for being a doctor. There was no passion there. There was this fascination. It was like this profession that was held on a pedestal. So it was that. I was passionate about science and I didn't know at that point when I made that pivot what I was going to necessarily do career-wise. At this point, then I had no clue. Sure. So you made a very bold choice at the end of the day because... It somehow jeopardized not just the vision that you had of what you could do, the pressure that you'd put on yourself by also naming this as what you were going to do. That's a very bold choice. Where did you find the courage to make it? Because not everybody does, right? I was always a courageous kid too. I go back to that kid. I was curious and courageous. Like, It didn't matter. There's never been a room I was afraid to step into. Even if I was afraid of something, I knew that's where I needed to be. I'm like, if I'm afraid of this, if this is inciting a little bit of fear because it's bringing me to an edge, this is where I'm supposed to be. So I've always been that kid. And so a combination of some of that was my internal workings. And then my mom has always really encouraged me to not let fear be the thing that stopped me from pursuing something. So when I came to this point, I thought, no, this is where I am. This isn't right for me. I'll figure it out. I didn't feel 
as discombobulated because I thought I'm getting a strong foundation in science. So I'll be able to find something solid to do with this. I know there's opportunities for me. There will be. And when I left college, I went to work in a research laboratory because I did very much enjoy bench research, which I did throughout college. And that was, you talk about like figuring out your path for it. That's how I figured out. That's exactly how I figured out my path forward to business school because I took a job as a research coordinator. So basically a lab manager, but also doing bench research in this very well-funded lab that was very fortunate to be a part of. So while I was assisting in research projects, I was also managing the lab resources. And there were a lot of resources. And I was negotiating deals to maximize our spend, what we got for our money. So I was working the business aspect of managing the scientific laboratory while also doing bench research. So I thought, huh, I considered going back to get a doctorate in chemistry. Now talk about a passion. That would have been fascinating. I had no freaking clue what I was going to do with that, though. That literally would have been a passionate educational pursuit with nothing, no goals, no other plan attached to it, because I will choose to learn just for learning's sake. I will always make that choice. But I thought I need to make a choice that's going to lead into a career path. And so instead of pursuing a doctorate, I decided to go to business school. Fascinating. So for me, fascinating because I know you through the Nalanda Institute. And suddenly I see how you're such a great fit (laughs) for Joe, for Dr. Joe and some of the other lecturers that you're with because you have that organizational capacity and the management of the resources and also this deep desire to learn and this affinity for research. God, that's such a great fit. <laughs> I love that you're just getting to know this about me right now. So, yeah, because obviously we don't know each other that well, but right? perfect fit. <laughs> and now here's the plot twist. So I do business school and I focus and specialize in both marketing and finance. And I go on to work in what is a naturally a good fit is medical device industry. So I'm getting to apply and utilize the scientific piece of my brain and my learning and also the business acumen that I've acquired and really sharpened in business school. And I do that. I work in this capacity for 15 plus years, like working in various organizations doing marketing, sales, business development, sales training, a mix of different things. And at some point, while there were things and aspects I loved about the job, and part of and often part of the story in a lot of these organizations is how they help people it started to feel like just misaligned with how I wanted to spend my time. Not to be ungrateful of these brilliant opportunities I had. And I had some great roles and worked with some great people and some great organizations that did do some great things to help improve 
lives and access to healthcare for many people. But I begin to wake up in not feel passionate about what I was doing. And there was really this longing for and this awareness of not quite being where and doing what I was supposed to be doing. Like I just had this awareness and I was really wanting to find that alignment. How did you feel it? How did it manifest? It manifested as a bit of boredom. And when I'm bored, I start to feel disengaged. And when I'm disengaged, I feel like I'm not being and showing up in my best self or giving the most that I can in the highest quality. And I remember I experienced that as a child. Again, I told you I was a voracious reader. Like I, I was reading at a really ridiculously higher level than the grades that I would be in. Or if it came to my classwork, if I was already done and I'd get bored and I'd check out and I might become like chatty because I was distracted because I'm bored now. Like now I need something else to engage me. And so I was feeling unfulfilled. And when I am unfulfilled in that way, then I'm not showing up in, as my best self. I no longer feel like I'm a good fit for what it is that I'm doing or where I'm at. Sure. And not just for me, for my case, but also for the place or the people who I'm working with. And so... What's sure, because there's a gap. There's a gap. Unfulfilled. There's a gap. There's something missing. There's something missing. So how this came together and how shift happened for me is so backtracking in like 2008 amidst like some job changes and some moving things like this still working in that medical device industry I was in a car accident I got rear-ended and I had some low back pain and a friend of mine suggested that maybe yoga might help and she had a friend that ran a yoga studio and I went to check it out. And I was also doing a physical therapy as one should when you're healing. And oddly enough, because it's not often the case that a physical therapist recommends doing yoga, but my physical therapist, yeah, yoga sounds like a great idea. So I had all these roads pointing to yoga. (laughs) I'm like, sure, I'll try this yoga thing. And the first class I try is a forest yoga class. And I remember one, my legs being on fire, <laughs> just cooking my legs in what felt like the world's longest bridge pose. But my back didn't hurt at the end of the class. I'm sorry. That's, I'm sold. I'm like, <laughs> wait a minute. I can do something myself that's going to help alleviate pain and help me better understand what I can be doing with little things I can be doing for myself to support my own healing. What's not to love there. So that's how I discovered in the same day, I discovered yoga. I discovered forest yoga. And what I love about forest yoga is it is inherently an introspective practice. It's about, Going within, accessing your own agency, being curious, working at your edge, 
for your growth, for your benefit. And there's some part of it that everyone can do because it meets you where you are. If you just heard everything I said, how does that not 100% align with who I've already told you that I am? Absolutely. It's beautiful. And one of my favorite quotes I've ever heard, and I don't know who it's from, it's yoga will meet you where you are. Yoga will meet you where you are. And listen, there, and I'll say this, there's a lot of yoga out there. There's a lot of different yoga out there and there's different things for different people. I'm so keen on this style because of how introspective it is. It's also the thing that it brought me to meditation because it is inherently a meditative practice. It invites you within, it, it pulls you accountable for staying within and exploring that. So it's contemplative in its, in, in its nature and not every yoga practice is. Right? Yeah, I think that sometimes we also find the teachers that we need to find at the time we need to. Oh, we definitely do. We find Mm. the teachers we need to find Mm. at the time. I believe in all of that. I do believe in all of that. I'll tell you what, I discovered yoga when I was in my early 20s and it was a videotape. (laughs) And I like to say that yoga had me at Shavasana. Ah, yes. And effectively, I don't understand why it took me 20 years or 15 years to discover meditation because, you know, there are similarities to a good yoga nidra shavasana. But I tried lots and lots of teachers over a 10-year period and didn't like any of them. So it took me about 10 years from that first video, knowing that I love that practice, to actually doing it on a regular basis. Sometimes when you don't find the right person, it's just not going to stick. I agree. And I'm grateful that I also knew myself well enough at that point not to force myself to try and do something when I didn't actually like the teacher or the way that they taught. Because a lot of us stick with something even when it doesn't work. So you found forest yoga and you're healing your back on your own. And double plot twist, you're now a certified yoga teacher in forest yoga. So... Before we go anywhere else, I'd love for you to tell me more about this style, about your teacher and this particular practice. Yes, Anna Forrest, she's been teaching yoga for over 45 years now. Yeah, and she created the style really to help heal herself, healing herself in a variety of ways, physical injuries, migraine headaches, eating disorders, drug and alcohol abuse from early life trauma she sustained. And so she, inspired by yoga training she'd done before, you'll find some Iyengar, some influence there. It's a Hatha style of yoga. And so you'll find some Similarities. So it's not something completely out of the wild, but it's the preparation of the body through breath work or work up front to really adequately warm up the core and prepare the body and then 
the smartest sequencing you've ever seen such that what you, there's a journey you're going on to potentially achieve or move towards certain asana that everything else is in service of. And then adequate like warming down or cooling down of the body so that when you get to the Shavasana, you can really absorb the medicine of that and the sweetness of being there. Yeah, it's a little bit, it's a wonderful and a magical experience. And it's my fave. It's my favorite. Way to try. (laughs) I will make sure that you do. Early, shortly after I took my first class, I knew that it was something that maybe in those couple years, I knew it was something that I'd wanted to teach, but it took me a while to give myself permission to step away from what I was doing work-wise to make the time to do it. So it took me a while to do that. But once I did, I was very grateful. It's definitely one of the most pivotal decisions and things I've done in my life. So I wonder... Now, this is really my curiosity leading. And perhaps some of our listeners are going to find the same. What was it like for you when you are in the middle of this successful life plan? Okay, you're feeling there's a gap, misalignment. You discover yoga and at the back of your mind, you're like, okay, I want to study this. I want to change my life. What was that like? Hmm, as complex as it sounds, <laughs> thinking, <laughs> not broke, don't fix it. It's if, as the Precisely, saying, not broke, don't fix it. Things were externally going well. Internally, they weren't going well. And that's the thing. I think we get accustomed to, or we can get accustomed to measuring our happiness or measuring success, measuring things by external factors or by external perceptions. And we let that influence our decisions. And while, yes, it it by no means was everything wrong with my situation, my circumstances, it just wasn't it. I felt like if I'm here to do something, this isn't it. It doesn't, this doesn't feel like it's it. And It felt disingenuous and it didn't feel meaningful to be spending my time doing something that was not in alignment with what I'm supposed to be doing. And I had no clue what the supposed to be was. I had no idea, but I felt a yearning for it, for figuring that out and for aligning with that more. So then I was thrown back into this space of thinking about what am I passionate about? Maybe that will help redirect me to what I'm supposed to be doing because I'm feeling a deep disconnection and passion from what I'm currently doing. And I, I just felt like that should exist. And it uh-huh. doesn't be all of it, but it felt like it should be a part of it. So this is another hot twist. I've been cooking and baking since I was 10 years old partially because of the oldest of four and my mother was busy. So I just needed to cook, needed to be cooking in the kitchen. And it's something I'm deeply passionate about. Like I enjoy. 
like I've had the opportunity to cater events or do cakes for weddings, things like this. Yeah, I don't mean just We're talking like, serious cooking. Yes, like I can cook and bake at scale. I can do it for small groups of people, but I actually am very passionate about it. And so at some point, I started to think, should I be pursuing that as a career? And this is all going to come together here, I promise, because it was... Keep going, I'm loving it. It's, I know it sounds wacky and it's random. But at some point I thought, no, I think this is it. Maybe I should move into that space or position myself so that I could establish a career that centered cooking, my culinary pursuits, things like this. I was living in Indianapolis at the time. I was working there for a company and I started exploring culinary schools in New York. Now, how was I going to get, what was this move from like Indianapolis to New York? And I had zero plans to quit my job and just run off and do something. That level of impracticality, that's not my thing. (laughs) I'm like, I do want a sustainable income while trying to make a pivot. So I decided for myself, like, I think this is the way I'm going to go. Looked at culinary school in New York. I was committed to this. I thought about when I might potentially start. So then I thought to myself, how am I going to get to New York? And what am I going to do? Like, what, what's the living I'm going to make for myself? I'm working for this international company, though. So I thought, I should look at positions in New York. Because I could then continue to do the work I'm doing while of course. it's other career. Smart move. Makes sense. It was a Sunday evening. I'll never forget this. I go on our company website. I'm looking at jobs and there were three different job opportunities and they were all like a sales-based job. I was currently working in marketing, but I'd gone back and forth in my career. I think I applied to all three of them. And within a couple hours, one of the hiring managers responded to me and essentially said, where have you been? This opportunity has been posted for nine months. For some reason, they hadn't been able to fill this position. And within a couple of weeks, I had landed this job to take a new position within my company that moved me to New York. And that was 11 years ago. Wow. That's wild. Following your intuition. Follow my intuition, took a chance, trusted it. And again, Mm. it was the path just opened. It gets even better because I take this position. I do very well at this position. But I also have an amazing manager, amazing manager that typically you sit down and do a review with your boss. It's all, it's focused on like the metrics and sales and what you've done and how you can grow. He would ask, how is it that I can help you accomplish your goals or what you want for yourself? Not within the context of just this company and this job, but in whatever it is that you want to do. 
even if it has nothing to do with this? Like, how can I help you do this? I think when he first asked me the question, I didn't think I had a real answer. But because he, this was his management style, this is who he was. I knew that when I decided it was time for me to do my teacher training. I could be really transparent with him and tell him I wanted to do my teacher training. I took a month off of work. Yeah, that's amazing. I went to a different country. I did my teacher training in Sydney, Australia. Mm. And he said, this is amazing. Yes, go do that. Let me know what I can do to keep your business intact or whatever. This was my manager. I'm so glad we got to this point because now I'm in awe of this manager. This just goes to show how much we can help change the game for others when we get into that position. That is a beautiful story. A model of what it really means to lead people. We think of leadership positions of leading people It's just so easy for it to be an egocentric exercise where it's, I am the leader and I should be able to say these things and these people do these things and they report back. And yes, as a leader, you should be helping to direct the course and have some oversight and guidance to make sure things are going in the right direction. But when it's a powerful thing happens when you treat people with respect and you actually meet them where they are and you hear what it is that matters to them, you can really get aligned on the best way to work with them, to help them thrive in the job that they are doing. And just that extra level of, I think, compassion and connection and just wanting to know what is it that you aspire to do and how can this be in service of that? And connecting with someone in that way, it just forges an otherworldly level of respect and bond. And yes, this is somebody I'm still very fond of and I'm forever grateful to for both modeling what good leadership can look like, but also helping to create a path and support a path to me really finding my purpose and what it was I feel like I'm here to do. It's a huge inspiration. I'm so grateful that you told me that story. And I'm sure that a lot of other people are going to resonate with that. So you've just used the words compassion and and connection. And these are obviously very important words in, in the work that you do today. How did you find your way to becoming a CBRT (laughs) trainer, compassion-based training? Can you tell me more about that in particular? Absolutely. So I'm just laughing and pausing because (laughs) obviously it's my story. Uh huh. When you share something with someone, you start to get other like little insights about just how interconnected everything is. In the course in my forest yoga world, I have many fellow teachers and friends, and I work with them in different things, whether it's like 
workshops or we have like little different initiatives and things we're doing. So eventually I decided that I no longer wanted to be in the industry I was in. And I did come to a point where I had to just say no, had to just leave it and let there be some spaciousness for some other opportunities to arrive. So I was working on some different startup type things. They were all in the realm of like wellness or healthcare related things, but more working with people one-on-one, not like in a healthcare system type of way. And a friend of mine who'd taken courses at Nalanda Institute before reached out to me because she had an opportunity to direct a program. And she asked me, she tells me about the Institute and about this program. And she tells me, asked me if I'd be interested in co-directing it with her. I'm telling you, this is a different program because as I get to know more about Nalanda Institute, I look at this compassion-based resilience training. I think this is something I think I want everyone I've come across to have access to, a training focused on helping people, one, foundationally develop some mindfulness and not just surface level mindfulness, but mindfulness in that really building awareness of who they are, especially when they're dealing with stressful situations, how that impacts them, how that relates to reactivity versus skillful responsiveness for them, helping them better connect with and see clearly what works for them, what they want to change, hold themselves in compassion in that, and also begin to see that when we see ourselves clearly, we work on these things of improving for ourselves, that it impacts how we show up with others and for others, whether in close relationships, out in the world, in communities, or as we, we interact with others in general. And I was able to take this training for myself. And the time I ended up taking it was, oddly enough, during the pandemic, beginning it was like in the early parts of the pandemic but also overlapped with George Floyd being murdered in the US and so you talk about a time where that was wrought with reactivity that was wrought with triggers it was wonderful to be in a community learning how to and practicing riding the waves of those things and being able to balance speaking truth while holding compassion and some level of tolerance and not for the bypassing of things that are going on but for one's own need to not be shut down from possibility of healthy connection. 
and also to leave open the possibility of bridges to be built for healing, for collective healing. What a story. What a time to be going through that. I remember how much of an internal shift my yoga teacher training was. And I can just about imagine what that was like for you, even though you were taking this online, particularly at the time that you did. I assume that you emerged another different version of you after that, that you could have perhaps not even quite seen coming. Absolutely. No, no way to see it, see it coming. Because what I was acquiring were skills that I didn't previously have. Right. As a person that's a voracious learner, voracious reader, what this program was helping me access and cultivate was a desire and a willingness to be with myself even more and some tools to be more curious, explore, see things more clearly. And then some tools to make shifts and to notice when I feel triggered or shut down or something feels like it might lack safety or I'm not sure about safety that I do shut down and withdraw. Seeing that very clearly and knowing that there were adjustments that I could make for myself and to also see the value of not doing that seeing how that disconnects me from community and from healing. And in that moment, that's what we needed. We needed community connection. Pandemic was happening. We were being disconnected. There was so much, there's racial tension arising that's also divisive, right? There's so many things happening. There were so many conversations that needed to be had. And there was so much awareness that was coming to the surface for many who may not have been as aware of these issues that did not start the day George Floyd died. They haven't ended since then, but there was now this opening for a broader, more collective conversation that was also brought with triggers, right? So here I was in a program that I think was providing folks with some skillfulness to navigate such challenging times. And I thought to myself, this is a resource. These are tools that I want to be able to provide to others. I think so many should have access to that I wish I had access to in my youth, that I wish my mom had access to, that I wish so many people had access to. How much better would we be at humaning together? I like to refer to humaning. Oh my God, a, I love that word, humaning. Yeah, I like to refer to humaning as a word. It's just like, we're just out here being, learning exploring and we're bumping up against one another in our various places we are on our individual journeys and 
sometimes we bump into each other and it's good things. And sometimes we bump into each other and it is not so great or it's causing some kind of harm that may or may not be intentional. And so, yeah, humaning is, is challenging. Humaning in and of itself is a whole thing, but then we're out here humaning together and just mm-hmm. intermingling and bumping up against one another. It's hard. We could all benefit from skillfulness in knowing how to human together. Mm. Have you ever heard the analogy of the porcupines? No. I heard it from Tara Brack. I can find, I think I've already shared the link once. She likes to tell this story that porcupines in the winter need to huddle together to keep each other warm in case of great frosts. And they huddle together and they needle each other and they're poking and hurting each other. But of course, they want to survive is to get together because the collective warmth is what's going to keep them alive. But it's deeply uncomfortable and difficult until the spring arrives. Anyways, I always love that analogy because humaning is like those needling porcupines (laughs) yeah we hurt each other consistently all the time and we get uncomfortable and then it goes away and then I love the fact you're talking about these as tools and I have to be totally transparent with you the reason I became a mindfulness teacher was also because I thought that these were tools that I would have wanted to give my younger self and my mother and everybody else because we really all need those tools. I know that you've got the course coming up in not so long. So I was wondering if you'd tell us who do you think benefits from the course and what it looks like in practicality? Mm, So there's two things I want to say about this course. So there are a couple ways you can interact with compassion-based resilience training. So it's an eight modular approach. First four modules being focusing on mindfulness. We do some bridging in between to understand why mindfulness is a good foundation for compassion. And the final four modules being focused on compassion. So you will find we have a community of teachers. I'm one of them teaching compassion-based resilience training in this eight modular approach. And you can find folks offering these different times throughout the year. Currently, what Nalanda Institute is doing is a compassion-based resilience teacher training. So this is a nine-month training that would empower someone to be able to teach this on their own. And the folks that come to this are a combination of people. So people that come to both of these. So either just as the eight modular course that's done over the course of eight or nine weeks are people who are looking to fortify their resilience, really their way of navigating stress a little bit better, more skillfully. And that's not to say that we become impervious to stress. It's that you're able to, when you're, thrown off course or off center, you find your way back a bit faster with more grounded feet, so to speak. Anyone, literally almost anyone. It's interesting, especially in the past few years, I had a disproportionate number of therapists, social workers, 
healthcare workers, people experiencing high burnout. So honestly, a lot of folks that are in the professions that are caregiving or holding of other people who are prone to more burnout, we see quite a few people coming to CBRT that way, but anyone that would like to refine and build their resilience. And then for the people coming into the teacher training, anyone who's passionate about adding this into their own toolkit of things they can offer to their clients. And so that also includes therapists, coaches, also often sometimes just other yoga meditation teachers. It's a good mix of people. It is a wonderful sort of, again, it's a wonderful extra kit to have in your pack. Yeah, for sure. So now I'd love to hear, how did you get into meditation? It's interesting because quite literally the beginning of a forest yoga class unskillfully executed begins with the setting of an intent it's an invitation to withdraw from the external so you know soften the gaze or close the eyes and go within and connect with your breathing and there is some intent that you're given to contemplate and connect with So it quite literally is like a meditation. So this is why this was the beginning of my meditation because I was literally doing this on my mat. The asana was a piece of it, but it's weaving into this. The asana is complementary to the intent, really. And because I started cultivating that on my mat, if I wasn't on my mat, then I wanted more of that. So that's how that started for me and seeking out other forms of meditation and exploring. And early on, it was a little bit of whatever I could find. It could be some mantra meditation. It could be like a lot of different things, but playing around with that. Oh, that's interesting. I've heard some people found one type and stuck with that and have never done anything else and others... I've done a lot of different types of meditation. Yeah, I think I've explored a little bit early on. I wanted to talk to you about something that's, I think, links the forest yoga, mindfulness and compassion. And that's the notion of embodiment. And this was a question I wanted to bring to you because I heard you discuss this on on a couple of other podcasts, including the one with Elizabeth Rivera, which I loved. Such a wonderful interview. Thank you. I'd love to to get your perspective on why do you think that embodied practices can be beneficial, especially for those of us still trying to find our way? If you have taken anything from my background, I am a person who loves intellectual pursuits. And I will approach things mind first as an intellectual exercise. And there's a lot of validity to that. I think there's the intellectual aspect of this 
in making sure we understand something, right? And that's concepts of something. And of course, we're working with the mind, refocusing the mind, rewiring the brain, like we're working with the mind in meditation. But it's easy, easier than some people realize to get stuck in having it be a mental exercise, right? So it's, oh, I understand these concepts. I understand the potentiality of some of these things or making these changes. But what moves you from thinking about something or considering something or the mental exercise of something and really integrating it into who you are, having it shift who you are, and then further impacting how you show up in action, how you show up in the world. And for me, that's embodiment. And the thing about embodiment, about somatic practices, about literally moving one's body, whether it's doing yoga asana or it's going for a walk or it's dancing or it's cycling something like that, it literally moves us out of our brain and into our body and into connecting with all of the other sensations and feelings and intuition that is a huge part of our knowledge base, a huge part of what can inform us about where we are, who we are, what we want, what needs to change, where we want to go, if we're connected to it. And it's very easy to be disconnected from that when we're stuck in our heads. And so the embodiment piece is critical. I cannot speak for the whole world, but from a lot of people that I've talked to, we easily can feel disconnected from our bodies. I very easily get disconnected because I've been told all my life that this rules, the mind rules, the mind is above the heart and for sure above the body. And if anything, in my personal experience, the body has a lot of messages to tell us about our experience. And we push away to your point earlier about the external markers of success that don't correspond to your inner alignment. We can very easily put ourselves in denial with that tool that is our mind because it's not always doing us right. And I personally am looking forward to continuing this personal journey through humaning <laughs> and learning to use that wonderful space suit of a body that I have because it's there to support me. I'm not there to push it away. Personally, I spent most of my teenage years thinking that my body was there to carry my head. <laughs> That's it. That's why I had this intellect and it was going to be moved around by this thing. Anyway. Oh, thank you for mentioning this. You know, what I'll say to this briefly is that, yes, we're taught to abandon the messages from our bodies. Because the thing is, our bodies are the first thing that really register some of the injustices that we see around us. Before we even we receive it as a thought in our head, we have a feeling in our body of discomfort of something's not right with this. Something's wrong. But when the other thing about feeling in our body and staying connected to it is that part of that ride is that 
there's, yeah, some pleasant things we're going to feel. But there's also discomfort. And there's a lot of discomfort in receiving that visceral message that something's not right and maybe I need to do something. And we've been taught to avoid discomfort as well. You're completely right. I think that as a species, we are also trying to shield ourselves from discomfort. Discomfort could mean death, right? Amygdala at play. We are taught not to connect with our bodies and to connect with the mind. And at the end of the day, what I find the most surprising is the amount of wisdom we can gain if when we notice what's in the body and we question it with our mind, what we can find on the other side. I'll give you a super small example. I was taking a hormonal treatment a few months ago and I read everything in the small print, which was, of course, a little bit scary. But I'm very grateful because I felt rush of anxiety. I'm not someone who suffers from anxiety on several occasions at a specific time and I could feel it. So I stopped. I remember I was walking my dog. It was March it was dark outside and I thought to myself, that's crazy. I have nothing right now to feel anxious about. So I scanned my life, I scanned my day. And then I was able to come to the conclusion of, oh, it's the hormones. But we need to first have that practice of connecting to our bodies because if we don't practice, we don't gain that intimacy. It's almost, it's like, you know, when you're really good friends with someone and like you can finish each other's sentences. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to have that relationship with my body. Oh, that's what you were trying to tell me. That's you. That's so well said. I have that relationship with my body. But that's because I nurture that relationship with my of body. Of course. So I think a healthy diet that includes meditative like top down practices and embody bottom up practices allows us to build that intimacy such that when something arises viscerally in my body I don't immediately try to escape it I inquire I get curious about what it is I'm able to hold some spaciousness around that, not necessarily jump to a conclusion, but ask questions, remain curious, remain open, and exploring what that might be. And that feels to me like the ultimate intelligence, right? That's a higher level intelligence using, using all of it. You're right. Ultimate intelligence is using all of it, not pushing any of it away and knowing how to connect all of it together. That's it. And I think anything I'm doing that's in service of building that, I can't stop using this. I love this phrase, building that intimacy. That's it. I know that I'm doing the right things because I am cultivating and nourishing and nurturing that relationship. I want to go back briefly to the notion of discomfort though, because you mentioned it, particularly I think around racial tensions. I can understand why some people would want to numb themselves from feeling assaulted 
with difficulties, aggressions, micro or macro. And I've read the wonderful book by Ruth King called Mindful of Race, which was a game changer for many reasons, but especially because she's a fabulous mindfulness teacher. I quote her all the time. (laughs) But the reason I'm linking this is I'd like to get your point of view and not just as a trainer, but in your experience, how has mindfulness and other practices like compassion and loving kindness supported you in times of difficulty around what's been arising, particularly in the last few years in the States? Although I'm saying in the last few years, what am I talking about? That's relevant because Mm. the last few years, what the last few years brought about was it brought this conversation to the sprite and mindfulness for me as a woman of color in the United States has allowed me to stay present with what I'm feeling in the moment and be honest with that and to see it clearly to be able to step back from it and determine like what parts of whatever's bubbling up, like what's mine, what's not mine. And it's helped me ride the wave of and manage like reactivity, right? Reactivity versus skillful responsiveness. What the last couple of years in the U.S. has really brought about and brought to a head has been especially for people of color who none of these things were new, these notions of race and like violence towards various minority groups, right? In this particular, this specific situation, police violence against the black community in America in a disproportionate amount. The added frustration was on the part of Black people and other people of color was this newfound awareness of white bodied people having this aha moment of, oh, this is a problem. This is still a problem. This is going on. And while awareness is the first step in healing or being aware of what you need to work on, what you need to be educated on. It is quite alarming and triggering to have a collective of folks have an aha moment to something that has been pretty visible in a society for a very long time. So what it speaks to and how this ties back to your discomfort question is that we talked about the importance of being connected to what we feel in our body it's Reverend Angel Kyoto. I don't know if you've, you, yes, I see you nodding. You know her well. One of my favorite things I've heard her say was something along the lines of the fact that if we can't witness like injustices and acts and bear witness to them and be with them, if we stay present with what we're really feeling and we're seeing what discomfort and a lack of discomfort resilience, a term coined by Camila Majid, that what 
a lack of discomfort resilience allows people to do is they see something, they're witnessing an injustice. And because they're not being personally impacted by it, they also have the privilege of shoving it away and ignoring it because they don't want to be with that discomfort because it's too big. It's too overwhelming. They don't know what to do, whatever it is. They don't want to deal with it. And that is harmful. And what has arisen or what came to the surface a few years ago was the obvious lack of discomfort resilience for an entire group of folks who have had the privilege to be able to look away. And all of a sudden it was hard to look away because it was what we were all talking about. And so I brought a lot of things to its head. And so discomfort is important. Discomfort is critical. It's more than important. It is so critical that we cultivate tolerance of discomfort, that we cultivate skillfulness of being in discomfort together around various things such that we're able to keep our eyes open, keep our eyes focused on what's actually happening. And we can hopefully hold one another with some level of compassion while trying to navigate the nastiness of whatever it is we see and that we're trying to get through as a collective. Because we do all live on the same planet. We all are interconnected. So we can't just pretend that we're in our own little isolated bubbles because the world doesn't actually work that way. Yeah, I think I wish there were more open conversations about the interconnectedness of our actions because at the end of the day, it comes back to us. It goes around the world and it comes back to us. I appreciate you sharing this and what you said about tolerance. I'm <laughs> I'm glad I asked about discomfort. <laughs> this This was really critical indeed. Now, one of the things I like to do is in the podcast at the crossroads between business and mindfulness, because technically that's where I sit. But because these are reflections on living, I like to ask my guests, what keeps them grounded? And for different people, it means different things. Of course, you have a mindfulness and a yoga practice, but, and I don't want to go into the routines so that everyone copies each other's routine, but what do you find really works for you? What is your go-to thing that just fills your cup? It's a couple things. If I am not doing the following, then I start to find myself ungrounded. There is some time daily on my mat. There's some time spent in meditation. There's some time spent outside in the sun. And there's some time spent immersing my body in water, salt water, a salt bath, even if I only have 10 minutes, it's a grounding thing. And a plus is if I can get my hands into some soil. I have a lot of plants, a lot. I have about 30 right now. I didn't start with a green thumb. I developed it during the pandemic. I see. I appreciate you starting off by saying that when you don't do several of these, you feel ungrounded. I think that's exactly why I asked the question. 
think that's what's interesting. At my best, there are 15 things I'd like to start my day with. But if I can do two or three, I know that this is going to be a very decent start of the day. All right. Before I actually ask you about the quick fire round, I wanted to check if there's anything else that you wanted to share with our listeners, anything that we haven't covered, because this was a very wide ranging conversation, but is there anything else that you'd like to add? I'm thinking soon there will be more opportunities for people to enjoy yoga and meditation with me. And I will let you know about those. You'll find that all on my website. Wonderful. That's where that will land. But yeah, that I'm just excited about. Yeah, more opportunities to help people connect to the resources they need to ground, to settle their nervous systems, all of that. Yes, I could ask you another series of 30 questions to talk about the nervous system, but maybe for another time. (laughs) So I'd like to start this off with asking you, what does connection mean to you? Connection requires presence. Presence and vulnerability. That's what comes to mind when I think of connection is that we have to be willing to really be here and now and then also to allow ourselves to be, to see and be seen, to allow for healthy, vibrant connection. And connection is foundational to healing. I was going to say amen. I'm so not an amen girl, but yeah. (laughs) What is your favorite word, but a word that you could theoretically tattoo on yourself or at least live with for a while? Mm. Word, a word. I don't know. I'm I'm drawing a blank on a word. It feels... A phrase? A phrase. What was my word? Anchor. Thank you. What did you want to become when you were a kid? A doctor. <laughs> that's what I did. That's, I really, I had my heart fixed on that. You see how that all worked out. Yes, beautifully. What song best represents you? You know what? This is sometimes hard for me, but when what popped into my head, I think the song is I Want a Little Sugar in My Bowl by Nina Simone. So good. It reminds me of just being in the sweetness, enjoying the sweetness of something, the sweetness of a moment in life. And just allowing yourself to tap into and be in joy and sweetness. That sounds wonderful. Just so you know, I actually collect all of the answers from that question and I have a playlist on Spotify. I'll send it to you. Oh, I love that. Thanks for contributing to it. It's very eclectic too, which is really cool. Now, that can be a tough one too, but such a good question though. (laughs) What is the sweetest thing that's ever happened to you? 
the sweetest thing. That is the sweetest thing that's ever happened to me. My teacher on a forest asking me to become a guardian, becoming one in person, your teachers. Oh, that's beautiful. It was pretty special to me. I think you've shared a lot about who you are, but I'm just going to check. Do you have a secret superpower? And if so, what is it? I do. And I realized this. I didn't just realize it recently, but I settled on this. I have a power to help people settle their nervous systems. Like I can really ground someone very quickly. It ties into my favorite word which isn't tattooed on my body as a word, but it's on my wrist as an anchor. Fantastic. Thank you. Is there a favorite book you could share with us? I have a current favorite. So as a person who like reads, I'm yeah. also, I read three books at the same time, typically. Yeah, me too. My or current, like seven. <laughs> my current favorite. I have sitting next to me. It's called Song of Increase by Jacqueline Freeman. It's listening to the wisdom of honeybees for kinder beekeeping and a better world. And lest you think it's about learning how to be a beekeeper, you could learn some great tips because this woman is, by all accounts, a bee whisperer. What I am really moved by in this book is really learning the intricacies and the beauty of how bees live in community with one another and how there's so little ego and so little pride and there's so much, they put the hive above themselves. Like they put the community comes first. There's so much we could learn from bees. And so it's like deeply moving to me. That's amazing. I'm totally going to order it. Where is somewhere you visited that you felt really had an impact on who you are today? That's interesting. I will say this. The first place, it took me, a, I'm fortunate, I've traveled a lot, but I didn't get to travel much really didn't start traveling until I was in business school. And my first international trip was to Brazil. And I was deeply moved by the sheer diversity of people in Brazil, because Brazil is this crazy melting pot that has like the highest population of like Africans outside of Africa and the highest population of the, just because of where it fell and a variety of different things, migration, slave trade, lots of things. But I remember seeing such wonderfully diverse people. I remember seeing this child that was like, skin was so dark, black skin, with red hair and green eyes. And I was so moved by this because I thought to myself, how beautiful it is to have such intermingling and how that can't help but when you have that kind of intermingling of people, it can't help but bridge some divides and tear some walls down that separate us. And so I just remember being so moved by that. 
That sounds wonderful. And God, I am trying to picture that kid in my mind's eye. It's like I'm there with you as well. That's so beautiful. Imagining that you can step into a future version of yourself. What do you think is the most important advice that your future self could give you right now? What's funny is that in my yoga teacher training, there's a future wiser self meditation that we do that I've done again a couple of times since then. So I've done it several times over years. And what I always come back to is the advice would be to just trust the flow of my life. To trust the flow of my life. To not be so swept up in trying to figure out all the next steps and what's going to happen when. To seriously just trust the flow. Very sound advice that I feel <laughs> I could benefit from as well. And this is my last and my favorite question. What brings you happiness? Allowing myself to be in the flow and the unfolding and concurrently helping others start to access that ease as well. Thank you. Sounds like a very clear mission. I feel super clear. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Rashana. It was such a pleasure to talk to you today. Of course, I'm going to put links to your website, to the CBRT trainings and anything else that can help people connect to you. Thank you so much. I hope that we'll have the opportunity to meet in person at some point soon. Yes. And until then, I hope you have a wonderful summer. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was so much fun and same. I hope you have a wonderful summer too. Thanks. Speak to you soon. See you soon. So, friends and listeners, thanks again for joining me today. If you'd like to hear more, you can subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice. If you'd like to connect, you can get in touch with me at Anvi on Twitter, Anne Mulethaler on LinkedIn, or on Instagram at underscore out of the clouds, where I also share daily musings about mindfulness. You can also find all of the episodes of the podcast and much more on my website, anvmilitale.com. If you don't know how to spell it, it's also going to be in the show notes. If you would like to get regular news directly delivered to your inbox, I invite you to sign up to my monthly newsletter. So that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening to Out of the Clouds. I hope that you will join me again next time. And until then, be well, be safe, and take care.